Welcome everyone to the X Umbers podcast. Let's go McLaren here and with me is School and Fawcett. We are educators at St. Isidore's Learning Center, Chester Academy. And today we have a special request, or we're, we're addressing a special request made by a student. That's right. So I uh, was, uh, you know, this is the time of the year where we go through and make sure everybody's doing their work and submitting assignments and all our grades are sinking. Yes. And uh, I was looking for a particular student's email to me. So I typed their name into my Gmail. Lo and behold, I find an email from them from March of this year. Wow. It's currently uh, mid-October. Saying, hey, you should do a topic. You should, I would love it. If, I love your podcast. I love listening to you. You're so interesting. And uh, you should talk about these two topics. Yeah. And uh, so now we're horribly overdue. So we decided we'd quickly make this, uh, you know, it's like when, you know, you, you pass the due date. And you quickly okay. slide it. You slide it under the uh, teacher's the. Uh, um, desk, you know, or the door of the classroom, and you sort of hope that they won't notice. Uh, can't do that digitally, of course. Right, yeah. uh, that's what we're doing now. We're scrambling to record uh, at least two, you know, two episodes for this particular student. So we thought this is a nice uh, topic to, to ease into. It, it was a uh, Melchizedek, the figure of Melchizedek in the Bible. So we're going to just yeah. kind of discuss him a little bit, and right. uh, let's start off by saying who who is Melchizedek. Well, and I think that was kind of the part of the question was who's this mysterious. Yes. Uh, and, and so, well, that, it's, he is somewhat mysterious, uh, is he not? And, and so, well, I think it's helpful to start at the beginning, uh, mm-hmm. a little bit of the context. So he shows up in Genesis chapter 14. But uh, prior to that, it's good to know what's going on, mm-hmm. uh, right? So you have in Genesis 12, the call of Abram, uh, right, where right. the Lord speaks to him, calls him, you know, leave your... Uh, your kin, your, your your family, your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. Uh-huh. And immediately, Abraham goes. That's right, yes. That's what we are in verse 4 of, of chapter 12, I believe. Uh, problem is, uh, if we read a little bit further, is uh, well, Abraham doesn't quite go alone, does he? I'm afraid not, no. Yeah, so he brings with him uh, his nephew, Lot, right? And so his kinsman Lot is with him, and uh, there they journey on. So you have this covenantal call, shall we say, uh, which involves a separation. It's very profound, is it not? Separating uh, this this from your from your land or from your, your, your family, your tribe, your family, even your father's house. Like, like that, that's a big ask, is it not? Mm. Well, it's what holiness means, right? To be holy is to be set apart. And that is what we see with Abram. He's called to separate himself from the pagan family that he belongs to and uh, go off to the inheritance that God has for him. You know, and God makes a big promise to him. You'll have descendants that are as numerous as the stars of heaven. Right. Um, and you're going to have this land that I'm promising you. Uh, but first you have to separate off. And that separation takes pretty tangible form in chapter 13, doesn't it? Well, what happens next is that Lot and Abraham, as they they go, they end up having to separate themselves once again. There's a bit of a dispute with the um, herders, uh, and so you know, Lot's flocks he isn't left, uh, or sorry, his flock and Abraham's flock or the herders they're coming to conflict, and they're kinsmen. So Abraham says, "Well, basically, look, this is this won't do." Uh, let, let's go separate ways here and let's separate. Uh-huh. And basically, so Abraham essentially saying is, hey, look, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. Uh, you go to the right, I'll go to the left. 
it's it's no difference to me essentially is what Abraham's saying uh-huh. and so if you were in Lot's shoes what would you do well we see he exactly I'm afraid I'd probably do exactly what he does which <laughs> is look out for the best territory and claim it first and uh, let Abraham have all the scraps you know yeah. of all the leftovers so right which is hugely, hugely problematic because uh, God has promised Abraham well, the promised land. And this is exactly what Lot now chooses, and Abraham is left to wander around the land of Canaan. Uh, and, and so... And it's a very interesting description, because it says in chapter 13, verse 10, and we're getting to, get, we're getting to Melchizedek, this is all important. Sure. Yep. Um, Lot looked around him and saw that the plain of the Jordan was well watered everywhere, yeah. like the garden of the Lord. Ah, yeah. Um, interesting, there's an interesting appendix. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> In case anybody's reading this and going, wait a minute, I know that territory, and it's nothing like the Garden of the Lord. Yes, we're getting there, reader. <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah will not always look like this, but uh, Lot chooses for himself all the plain east of the Jordan. So, because it's so beautiful and well-watered, it's like Eden. Yeah, right, exactly. It's a very, very intentional reference. It's almost like he's trying to build his own paradise. You know, right. God has some land in mind for Abram, but Lot's going to grasp after uh, after Eden, right? After the Garden of the Lord, try to claim that territory for himself. You know, yeah. And uh, Abram, uh, well, sorry, Abram at this point uh, is um, almost seems, from a human perspective, none the wiser uh, mm-hmm. in that he doesn't stick up for his uh, his rights. Perhaps he doesn't voice concern or trepidation okay. about this decision making uh, he leaves it in the hands of Lot now things left in the hands of Lot uh, perhaps not too surprising spiral out of uh, control That's right. and verse 12 is to clarify Abram settled in the land of Canaan which we will hear more about in scripture while Lot settled among the cities of the plain and moved his tent as far as Sodom there's a detail that the people of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Lot doesn't care that they're all sinners. Hey, the land looks great. I'm going to claim this land of Sodom to live in. And Abraham can have, or Abram at this point, he hasn't had his name changed. Abram can have Canaan. Right? Yes. And that's, and that's the context that sets up uh, the appearance of Melchizedek. Well, yeah, well, yeah and then soon uh, it transpires, we're told in the beginning of chapter 14 here, that, uh, well, Lot is... Um, a lot is endangered, is it, right? And there's That's this, right, yeah. There's the uh, different kings, different powers of, of the land who, who arise. Uh, we have the five kings uh, as well as the four kings. And there's some skirmishes going back and forth. And, and, but, but so, and what happens here, basically? with, with Well, um, there, you'll, you'll see a whole mess of names, right? It's very yeah. interesting because it doesn't seem like Sodom is all that involved. They're just like an ally of somebody else who's dealing... Well, they're, they're, there's a rebellion going on. Like, there's one kingdom that's ruled over other kingdoms, and they've served them for 12 years, but in the 13th year, they rebel. Uh, unlucky 13, I guess. And Sodom just gets caught up in this. Um, yeah. But it doesn't go well for Sodom. Uh, they are routed uh, in this uh, battle. And uh, let's see here, verse 8. The king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah went out. They joined in battle. And... Uh, Verse 10 says that there were lots of bitumen pits. 
Mm -hmm. I guess they hadn't um, prepared for. Right. Um, they weren't paying. They, they weren't reading the Art of War, I guess, and yeah. paying attention to their surroundings. Yeah. And so, uh, as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and others fled to the hill country. So, verse eleven: the enemy took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions. Verse twelve: they also took Lot, who lived in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Mm -hmm. So, as a result, he becomes a POW. Um, right. Despite it, I don't. It doesn't really indicate. I don't. I doubt he was engaged in the fighting. I mean, who knows if he got drafted or what? But it's yeah. probably not yeah. what he signed up for. I would imagine when he picked this land, because it's like Eden. It's so beautiful and well watered. Uh, well, yeah, but there's um. It's, it's like the you got to read the fine print. <laughs> right, right. Well, right. I mean, in a garden, a garden is distinct from uh, a wilderness in that it's cultivated, it's tended, it's 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 kept for there's a purpose a design and order in it and presumably there's walls as well uh, right. to protect it but in this case uh, well there's some marauders <clears throat> who are coveting this land and break down the walls or over the walls and here they've taken possession of it and uh, as plunder and lot and his possessions are taken as well and so he's swept up in the uh, movement the world of of this world uh, more or less so where he once seemed like he had control of his life, right? yeah. you can pick whatever land you want. Well, now it's like falling into the bitumen pit, right? Like right. now he's trapped, yeah. he's stuck there, and he can't... Yeah. Now he's completely out of control. All his goods and his own person have been uh, captured, right, as a result of this war. Yeah, so it's almost the, the opposite then in that sense, right? Uh, whereas once he seemed to be at liberty to, to decide his future, or at least his immediate fate, uh, here now it's... Um, yeah, well, the reverse. He's, he's got no say in the matter. He's just, he's bound and brought into bondage. Well, it's, almost, it's, a, it's a kind of, I think that that reference uh, to it being like the Garden of the Lord is intentional. I think we're almost supposed to see this as another image of the fall. Right. right? A grasping after this kind of awesome power, wonderful uh, situation, and then falling into a kind of captivity as a result of it. Yeah. Uh, uh, getting stuck in the trap, you know. Right, right. But now, uh, of course, uh, as the story unfolds, we know that's that's not the end of the story. Certainly when God is at work, uh, we are not just left in, in dire straits or to fend for ourselves, and that's all there is. End of story. Uh, here, I mean, Lot does have some recourse uh, in that he is, well, he's got a really cool uncle. Yes. Uh, right? And, and so... Uh, a really cool uncle with a really well-stocked militia, apparently, of 318 men. Right. Um, yes. They hear about this, verse 13. They mention that um, Abram is living by the Oaks of Mamre, uh, which we mentioned before, I think, in our Trinity episode. It's in the Trinity icon, right? The right. Oak of Mamre is there. It's yes. associated with Abram. And when Abram hears about this, verse 14, he leads his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and goes in pursuit as far as Dan, and routs the captors of Lot. Goes after him and rescues him. Yes. Uh, it's a dramatic... I mean, he's, he's sort of like a Middle Eastern... Uh, well, let's just say it, he's, he's a bit of a warlord, really, which he's, I suppose you need to be uh, in this context. You know? Yeah, he's, he's taking uh, armed men, armed forces, and, and he's going into in battle. Now, uh, what's interesting here about his particular uh, militia is it's it's uh, 
um, perhaps it could be lost in, in translation, it's 318. Uh, now, if you're familiar with the Hebrew um, alphabet, there or these numbers, there are no numbers in mm -hmm. Hebrew. They just correspond to different consonants, yeah. uh, which uh, that's how you come up with your numbers. So different names will be associated with different numbers, like 14 and David, for example. Yeah. I, and so this number uh, 318 is the same. It's the equivalent of the name Eleazar. Now, Eleazar it translates as the Lord is my strength or the Lord is my help. Uh, so it's not... Um, and this isn't just the name we've plucked from the air. Eleazar is the name of Abram's servant, right? right. So we, we already know from Genesis that this idea of uh, having a servant with this association with 318, a very important servant, right? He's probably the one who finds a bride for Isaac. Um, in fact, it seems like he's going to be the heir of Abram's house until he's told that, in fact, he's going to have a son, Isaac. Uh, so Eleazar, you know, the Lord is my strength. There's a, um, this, this could be a separate topic, but it's also the same name as Lazarus. Okay. So there's a there's a an interpretation of some New Testament passages that become very interesting in that right. light. Uh, yeah. We could talk about that another time. But oh, wait, um, wait, wait, what particularly thinking with Lazarus? Oh, like God is my strength. You mean? Well, or, uh, all right. Well, let's just let's just pause the Melchizedek thing for a moment. Okay. The uh, rich man and Lazarus. Right? Oh, okay. The, so rich, I th I think, I think, the rich man. The rich man isn't just a wealthy dude, right? Yeah. He represents like the, the people of Israel. Yeah. Right, clothed in sumptuous uh, garments, like in the temple, and he's eating. And at Lazarus, Eleazar, right, the disinherited servant of Abraham, yeah. is there eating the crumbs, right, from his table. Right. And, and we know that's a representation of the Gentiles because of what the Canaanite woman says to Jesus. Right, it's the same language, right? right. You know, the, the, even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the table of the children of Israel, right? Yeah. But what happens is, uh, of course. Um, the rich man goes to hell, or well, he goes to you know the fiery part of Hades. Whereas, yeah. where where does Eleazar go? Where does Lazarus go? To the, the bosom of Abraham. Right. right? He's in in this um, place where there seems to be flowing lush water. So it's a kind of promised land. So now the Gentile who was disinherited here is been yeah. raised up. And it's funny because the rich man still sees him as a servant. He's like, "Well, send him over and bring some water." Right, to yeah, call. give me, right. give me all these so, on the devil. So there's that. So I mean, there's lots of there's lots of elements to what that story is saying. Of course, as as always with scripture, but that's part of it. I, I think right. that's also what's going on here is that yeah. Eleazar, um, uh, his story's not finished. Let's say, here, right. uh, the yeah. servant of Abraham. But anyways, Eleazar's name, of course, in uh, Hebrew gematria is three hundred and eighteen, and there's three hundred and eighteen servants here. Yes. Who who rescue Lot and says he Abram brought back all of Lot's goods and his and all his uh, women and people. You know the whole family he rescues. It's a complete uh, restoration of Lot as a result of Abram's efforts. So right and and again the the name pointing to this is certainly not just because of Abraham's own efforts or prowess in, in our strategies right. on the battlefield. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But this yeah. is due to the Lord's uh, help. Uh, here, so all right. Now we've set the stage, I think, for the appearance of this mysterious Melchizedek. And this, too, in case this isn't stressed enough, if Lot um, getting captured represents the fall, uh, again, we've always talked about this, right? There's the four levels of scripture. There's the literal, right. and there's also the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical. Uh, allegorically, this is you know, represents God coming and rescuing us from the power of the devil, right? With the Lord yeah. as our strength. Right, so there's already something, uh, a foreshadowing of our redemption that's going on. There's a foreshadowing of Jesus in this already. We should already be primed for this. And then who comes into this scenario? 
Well, now shows uh, now who shows up is Melchizedek, uh, and so we figured um, verse eighteen. Yeah, Genesis fourteen eighteen. Uh, yeah, sorry, yeah, uh, chapter fourteen. Uh, here, a number of important things are noted first. Let's let's read this out. Okay, read sure, this out sure. loud okay. first so we can unpack. Yep. Uh, so they show up in a valley. The king of Sodom is there uh, to meet uh, Abram, I guess, and say thanks. And then verse eighteen, and King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him one-tenth of everything. And then it goes on, and there's an interesting anecdote after that. But that's, yeah. that is what we get about Melchizedek. And then they, the, the text moves on. Yeah. And we don't hear about him again until the book of Psalms. Yeah. So... What do we what what do we get from that? Is he, he's mysterious. He, he, he is absolutely right. What a peculiar. He's not part of the battle. He's not mentioned in these kings uh, earlier in the chapter who were involved. He just kind of materializes after the battle. Yes. Although he does have a location that he's from. And yes. where is he from again? He's from a place called Salem. Yes. Now, if you, that might sound familiar, sort of. Yeah, it's uh, in Massachusetts, right? <laughs> it's, <laughs> where they, it's where they hunt yeah. witches. Yeah, sure. It's yeah. uh, so. Well, if. It, um, it's related to the word for shalom, uh, yep. peace, so king of peace. But there's a city uh, later on, which you're probably more familiar with, Jerusalem. Uh-huh. Uh, and so this is Melchizedek, who's not coming from any uh, random state, uh, right, mm-hmm. or, or parochial uh, vicinity, but from Salem. Uh, so this, this takes on significance uh, in salvation history. He's the king of this of peace from the city of and, and Jerusalem or Salem at this point like it's not Genesis isn't talking about it like it's a super significant place yet right, right. it's yeah. not like the creation myths of like Babylon or Assyria or Nineveh where like yeah. you know that city is like the center of everything Jerusalem does not sh- it's not really show up anywhere really in Genesis or in the Torah and it's yeah, it's, yeah, it's mentioned uh, kind of implicitly, uh, right? Right. In prophetic city, context, when you when yeah. you come into that city, yeah, uh, right, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. So it doesn't doesn't actually specify because well, it it you have to wait till King David uh, arises, mm-hmm. and this is much later in Israel's history. Yeah, when uh, they capture Jerusalem and and and, and occupy it. Um, so here, but now we're, we're told though this is the introduction here of, of someone from the city from Salem. What's also fascinating is not just location, but what he is armed with, mm-hmm. uh, what, yes. he's, what his arms are laden with, bread and wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this seems odd for a few reasons. Uh, one is that um, he's a, not just a king, but a priest. And what do a priest offer? Or what do priests do? Well, well, they, they offer, offer sacrifice. That's right. So if you look at the dictionary definition of a priest, it's someone who offers sacrifice. So uh, his sacrifice, which he brings, are bread and wine. And so immediately, this is probably not too uh, uh, mysterious, I suppose, to make some connections now, some leaps to the uh, New Testament, certainly, uh-huh. uh, with with this sacrifice which is offered, this Eucharistic uh, undertones here of what, what's being, uh, but, but it's interesting because it's so unlike. For, I mean, I, I mean, there is food and drink sacrifice in the New Testament and the, um, the Levitical law, but it's everything about this is so unusual from a Hebrew's perspective. And of course, he's not a Hebrew, right? Hebrew, you know, uh, is, is that well, 
maybe maybe he is. We don't know. We don't know anything about him, right? right. Uh, but he's certainly not an Israelite because there's yeah. no Jacob yet. But he's a king priest. And that's not a thing we get in Israel, except for David, sort of, <laughs> in an unusual way. But yeah. there's, a, there's a separation of powers, you could say, later on. And again, sacrifices typically involve the shedding of blood, unless you know, this is a particular kind of Thanksgiving sacrifice or something like that, right? right. Yeah. So this is, right away from a Hebrew perspective, this is just unusual. Having priest kings in that time wasn't unusual, but it certainly is for the Hebrews right. to have a priest king. Uh, yes. And then the sacrifice that he's offering, if, if sacrifice this is intended to be, it's just very unusual in that context, right? I mean, even they're constantly, I mean, even Abram, when he gets into the land, he builds an altar. Like, that's what we're used to seeing as far as sacrifice yes. goes, is like something gets slain and burned, yes. right? So right away, yeah, it's, 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 it's Eucharistic in a very unique way. Right, because you know? what's being broken and shed and, and spilt, well, are shared bread mm-hmm. and wine. Uh, and and the, this unusual fact is reinforced by his name. So Melchizedek literally means the king of righteousness. Uh, and so that he's a priest as well offering sacrifice is, um, yes, disconsonant with the Hebrew understand categories of, of separating king, priest, and prophet, and so on. Um, and we notice, too, as well, his um, blessing. So he's, he's offering this blessing, and blessing Abraham uh, by God Most High. Uh, and appealing to God as the maker of, of heaven and earth, it, which which ties back into the promises made to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed in Abraham or will bless themselves through Abraham, all, all the families of the earth. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and so this is acknowledging God as creator of heaven and earth. But So that's the universal, if you want to think of it that way. Uh-huh. But here's the particular the one whom God has called. Uh, and so the universal in particular here uh, are, are manifest in, the, the, in Abraham and this call, which Melchizedek is able to identify uh, before maybe Lot needs to remember this, uh, or, or the, the, the king of Sodom, or, and the other locals, uh, and so on, of this land. That this is someone who's been chosen uh, by God. And uh, it's... I mean, it's also intriguing because, again, we don't know who he is or what his ancestry is, but he's he's a monotheist, oh, right? Right, or at least yeah. a hemotheist, right? Sure. Like he's, yeah. he's he's recognizing God Most High who created the world. Right? Yeah. He's using that language from the beginning of Genesis, um, and he's using a, a, like a blessing formula. Yeah. You know, very familiar again later on into the Jewish people, and then now to us from our Eucharistic liturgy, right? You know, blessed be Abraham and blessed be God, right? Who's made heaven and earth, right? Yeah, it's a Baraka prayer. Uh, yeah, it's called, yeah, it seems to be, yeah. So, um, and then, of course, uh, Abram then gives him one-tenth of everything. Yeah, now that's also a very interesting detail. Uh, it's kind of mentioned at the end, but uh, it's not insignificant. So what's what do you think is up with that? I mean, I've heard of this... Of offering a tenth of uh, things, yeah, uh, yeah, that will also show up a lot more in the uh, in the Torah, right? right? The offering the tithe, the tithe, yeah. Uh, again, to the Levitical priests, um, based on this, I, you know, there's nowhere earlier in Genesis where God says, you know, make sure you partition a tenth uh, of your stuff off and give right. it to me, yeah. Uh, because again, at this point, there isn't like a kind of system in place that God has set up where 
you know, here's the mechanism whereby you offer sacrifices to me, or you offer, you know, or where, you know, God hasn't settled into the tabernacle yet or the temple yet. Right. So, you know, there's no direction to Abram to do this. Yeah. Um, and yet it seems to be something that, uh, I don't know, happens spontaneously or something that well, happens in the... Spontaneous, but what uh, strikes me here is it's a liturgical context. Yes. So, so it's not as random uh, exhortation to uh, donate or, or, you know, to, to give to charity or something like this, but it flows from worship. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, so just as later on the Israelites will receive the Ten Commandments and, and the Mosaic Law, but this isn't just like a set of rules that they just abide by for some arbitrary reason, uh, but rather this is a response to, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You'll have no other gods beside me or before me. So it's a response to God who first calls them. And as such, then they respond to the commandments and so on and live these ethical lives. So here Abraham is... Uh, just as Melchizedek is sacrificing, uh, offering a sacrifice of praise as well as um, bread and wine, so Abraham is responding. It's a reciprocal mm. uh, uh, uh-huh. action here where he's now going to give of his wealth. Right, well, right. wealth which, um, which God has provided him for. Right? Right. Like yes. He's promised yeah. him an inheritance, he's given him this land, yeah. and their response to that is to, yeah, to offer a tenth of that up yeah. Uh, to this figure who seems to represent God. I mean, that's another thing a, a priest does, right? Because the right. priest is the go-between, in some sense, between God and us in a liturgical way. Right. right. And so Melchizedek appears in that function as it yeah. is representing God, and therefore him giving that tenth to him is sort of him symbolically offering all of his inheritance back to God, right? So what's a direct response to what's going on in chapters 12 and 13? Yeah. In a lot of ways. That in some sense, God is all prepared for him. So what we have here is this image of uh, Lot grasps after Eden, falls yeah. into captivity. Abram frees him from that by the strength of God, and this culminates yes. in a liturgical feast offered by a king priest uh, in which bread and wine are offered, and there's a blessing uttered, and a tithe is presented to God. Yes. Yeah. So sacrifice is returned. Yes. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's exactly, yeah, it's exactly. It is. God feeds us, and we offer back to God. Yeah. Now, again, now, the question then of who is Melchizedek yeah. Uh, I can't say we've necessarily answered it. And, and it, it seems intentional, sure. right, by yes. the author or the editor, however this is composed, yeah. is that he seems to appear out of nowhere, uh, out of peace. Right? He's the king, yeah. of, the king yeah. of righteousness appears from the king of peace. Yeah. Uh, now, again, he's the king of peace. This is significant. It, so in some sense, it's like he emerges out of the situation of right. the victory being oh, achieved. okay. Right? In, a, in a symbolic yeah, okay. sense, okay. right? Like, um, now, I mentioned before there's the allegorical interpretation uh, Christians did not invent the allegorical interpretation, right? Right. Uh, Jewish thinkers were already sort of applying this, especially in a place like Alexandria, oh, right. where yeah. Greek philosophers were already allegorically interpreting the myths of uh, Homer and so forth to make them more palatable. Yes. And uh, we've talked before about, go way back to our first few episodes, actually, right. Philo of Alexandria. Right. The way yeah. he reads, and this will come back again when we talk about Hebrews, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get there by way of Psalms. Sure. But... Uh, Philo interprets this in a platonic sense, and we've talked a lot about what Plato says, uh, right? That you've got to conquer your passions within yourself and let reason rule over you. Oh, right. Yeah. So symbolically, so what Philo sees going on here is, you know, this isn't necessarily a literal thing for him, I suppose. It's about uh, don't fall into temptation, like don't don't give into your passions like Lot did. But if you do, you've got to conquer that and then let uh, your reason bring you peace by ruling over you and establishing kind of order within yourself, and then you will have righteousness and peace. And he specifically says, because he's you know, writing in Greek, 
He says, uh, Melchizedek represents the Logos. Right. Which we've yes. discussed before, the Logos in great detail. Yeah. It can yeah. mean uh, both the over, like the logic of the universe itself, right. the rationality yep. of the yep. whole cosmos, and also the seed of that reason in ourselves, right? right. Our own personal rationality. Yeah. Right? Uh, now we were discussing this a little bit. Some Jewish uh, commentators react against that because yeah, that, that makes it very universal, right? Now yeah. it's not a message just for the Jewish people; it's a message for everybody. Yeah. And so yeah. One, one theory that was posited well, is like I guess it's know, probably worth sure. pointing out that Philo is not um, universally representative. Of, no, of Judaism not. In, yeah. in the first century. Well, just uh, like Alexandria and Antioch, yeah. left, even within Christianity, Alexandria and Antioch, left, exactly yeah. it happens in Judaism as well. So there's another tradition yeah. which says Melchizedek is actually Shem, which if you right. go back to the story of Noah, uh, Noah after the flood, he has you know, the three sons, and then one of them is Shem, and Abram is a descendant of Shem. That's where we get the word Semite, actually, Semitic. Yes, that's right. Uh, so Melchizedek would be um, a name that was given to him, or he's someone associated with Shem yeah, in some Shem way. literally meaning name, right? So, I, right, yeah, exactly. So, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Shem means name, which is very, and that's even the term for God in some ways, Hashem, right, the okay, name, because they right. don't want to yeah. refer to him directly. Yeah. Uh, I have to say I don't find that convincing. That seems yeah, ad hoc. It um, seems a little uh, in the chronology there. I think might be. Uh, You'd have to be like a stretching it a little yeah, bit. For sure. uh, and uh, but I love in the uh, one uh, Jewish source we we're looking at is is a critique of um, Philo's cosmopolitan monotheism. Yes. So basically, right. it's a critique of, of of Philo being too accommodative to Greek mm-hmm. thought and trying yeah. to absorb it all and make it fit jive with with the Torah which is perhaps it could be a legitimate critique of allegorical interpretation gone too far perhaps but even taking it literally it is very interesting that you have this figure who's not associated with Shem and who yeah. predates Abram in some sense yeah. um, who Abram's showing so much respect to who's already a monotheist right. priestly so, ruling okay, figure so maybe it makes sense because he's it, the elder so there, maybe there's yeah. a cause call and thing that well, certainly I think we'll see the author of Hebrews does do that he kind of takes what Philo does and uh, Christianizes it as he so often yeah. does but uh, so anyways but that's all we have and, and he seems very intentionally I, I think the mysterious the mysterious element of him is very intentional uh, which yeah. we'll get into when we get to Hebrews but there's a yeah. reason why we're not told anything about where he came from, where he went afterwards, um, that's Christologically important. <laughs> right. Yes, yes, as we'll see. Now, I guess, before we turn to Hebrews, it might be worth looking at Psalm that's 110. That's where we should go, So, yes. uh, if, you're, if you have your Bible there with you, uh, go to the book of Psalms, and uh, it's a messianic... Uh, oh, here we go. Uh, Psalm, it starts very interesting. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at your right hand, I'll make your enemies your footstool, which echoes uh, Psalm 2 as well as Psalm 8, where we talk about the footstool. Uh, and this is um, the Lord said to my Lord. Uh, this is like um, Yahweh says to Adonai, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so this is, the, again, now almost um, like a mediation in the sense of the Lord speaking to uh, the, the servant or the master, uh, right? Uh, and this is uh, a, um, how would you say this? Um, an act of God. The God will act in history to bring about this favorable position for the master or the, or, 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 or the king here, the Lord. Uh, and, and it ties it in, in verse 2, uh, the Lord sends from Zion your mighty scepter, rule amidst of your foes. So again, the language of scepter here, a uh, symbol of, of strength, but also again, directly linking back to Psalm 2, mm-hmm. and as well as Zion, that yeah. city, which 
as we just discussed, Melchizedek also connected to Zion or, or Jerusalem. Right? I think it's David who chooses Jerusalem to be the center of a kingdom, all right, and really, you know, inaugurates it in that way. So <clears throat> that's where it starts. And so Psalm 110, it seems like a kind of coronation, right? Um, the Lord was going to have the Lord, another Lord sit at his right hand. Uh, and uh, as you say, he's in Zion. So, you know, superficially, this almost seems like it could be about King David. You know, maybe it's oh, God yeah. raising King David yeah. up to the position of ruling over uh, Jerusalem and over the people of Israel. Uh, then uh, verse 4, it's uh, very interesting. Yeah, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are priests forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Yeah, and so here this is this mention now of Melchizedek. And curiously enough, this uh, conflation, shall we say, mm-hmm. of, of this overlap between the priest and the king. That's right. Which, which makes sense, going back to Melchizedek's name, the king of righteousness, uh, but also a priestly function of offering sacrifice. So here, this, this, um, in I, this psalm, this coronation, this, this royal psalm, it seems that the, the priest and king are going to get it. Yeah, the first three verses are all kingly, right? Like, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You know, you'll rule in the midst of your foes with a mighty scepter. Um, and, uh, you know, your youth will come to you. And then the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You think it's going to be something kingly. Yeah. You're a priest uh, forever right. yeah. after yeah. the order of Melchizedek. Yeah. So right away, whoever is the you know whoever this psalm is directed to is supposed to be both a priest and a king. Yeah. Uh, now David does wear an ephod at one point. Uh, right. He does go yeah. into the uh, tabernacle and eats yeah. the bread of presence. Right. So yeah. he does a few priestly things here and there. Yeah. But David's not a priest fundamentally. Right. Yeah. Right. He even though he composes music for worship and everything. So for this reason and for other reasons that the New Testament draws on, the Book of Acts does a lot of Psalm 110 to show that this can't possibly be David. Psalm 110 is about some kind of royal priestly figure who's going to be raised up to rule alongside God, and he's going to be both a priest and a king. Yeah. And this question is, okay, why Melchizedek? Why are you invoking the name of Melchizedek in this, uh, in this psalm? Yeah. Who, which, which, which the tradition actually says it's written by David. That's the caption in mind, yeah, 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 yeah. So again, if you take that literally, I mean, it's David saying that my, you know, David's own Lord is the one who's going to be raised up and made into a priest king who rules with God. So it, of course it can't be David himself, it would seem. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but then in verse 5 and following, it, it comes back to the language we've seen elsewhere, like coronation, a psalm like, say, a royal psalm like Psalm 2, uh, and so on, talking about shattering enemies uh, and, and ruling over other kings and executing judgment on nations. Uh, and here, what's interesting, verse 7, and this is the way it ends, is very, um, almost like a cliffhanger, somewhat cryptically, right? Uh, he will drink from the stream by the path, therefore he will lift up his head. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it almost ends as this, hmm, what could this possibly mean? Uh, and I think there are some Christological ways uh, we could read, the, uh, read this, uh, is that um, lifting up his head perhaps... Mm, in a coronation ceremony, this might have to do with the oils being uh, dripping down his head and so on. Uh, also, it could talk about being exalted. Uh, but uh, it's, 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 again, it's, it's not um, particularly clear uh, how this is going to uh, play out necessarily. So it's even more mysterious, right? There's this mysterious figure who appears and Abram shows him deference, and then we're told 
there will be this new ruler who will rule in a priestly way like Melchizedek. He'll be in the order of Melchizedek, which we don't know anything about Melchizedek having an order from Genesis. He's just this cryptic figure with no context to it. And yet here Psalm 110 is saying, you'll rule in the order of Melchizedek. So there's some kind of standard going on. And it's all left, like you said, it's like hanging. It's like still unresolved, you know? Or at least not clear as to... Um, at this point in history, how this, what this actually looks like. So, in other words, it's awaiting its fulfillment. We might say uh, the text is uh, needs more clarification from something else. That's right. Yes, yeah. and that brings us to the book of Hebrews. Now, I'll just say all of chapter seven should be read. Um, we, I, I mean, we could just go through it, but that would probably take us a lot longer than we're planning to be here. Um, but let's uh, to refresh what Hebrews is about seems like there was a situation of Christians who still thought you had to hang on to lots of things from Judaism. Um, and one of those would maybe be the Levitical priesthood. Right? Yeah. I mean, God did tell Aaron, right, it's an eternal priesthood. Right. right? Yeah. So we should maybe hang on to it, you know, and maybe we should hang on to the temple as well. I think that gets into questions about well, if yeah, this was yeah. written before or after the temple no, fell, I mean, but you know, like it's... The, a, the Essenes too were um, waiting for a... Um, go back to our episode for, on John the Baptist for, for the Essenes. Well. That's uh, right, yeah. Descendant of Aaron. So, so yeah, there's... there's uh, with an apocalyptic expectation, there's an important role expectation that they have there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what Hebrews is doing is saying, even if, this is what I get from it, is if you look at the Old Testament itself, it is telling you that it's not complete. Right. Like yeah. it, the clues are actually there in the text already of saying something is going to come that will supersede this. Uh, like, for example, uh, the following chapter, chapter 8, talks about the the tabernacle and temple was a shadow of the reality. Ah, yes. Right? And then, then the reality is not. Which, because Moses himself records that God said, you know, make this a court as a copy of what you're seeing. Well, if there's a copy, then that implies that there is an original, right? A true form. That's right, uh, yeah, an authentic one. Yeah. Uh, and we talked several episodes ago about uh, chapter one saying, like, that there's someone who's higher than the angels. Yeah. And the Old Testament itself says that the law was given by angels, which means that there must be something that's higher than the law. And right. that's the Son of God himself, and so forth. So <clears throat> chapter 7 is doing something similar. It's also saying this element of Judaism that you're hanging on to has been superseded, and you shouldn't be surprised because scriptures themselves told you it would be. And the example right. that is the proof text that's given is about Melchizedek, both yeah. from Genesis and from Psalm 110. Now, chapter 7 begins with just a recapitulation of the story of Genesis, and verse 2 actually makes the point of of parsing and translating, that Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and king of Salem means king of peace. Verse 3 is very intriguing. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now this has given rise to some interpretations that take this very literally. So this is where you might get a philonic interpretation. Melchizedek is some kind of angelic figure, or maybe even I have heard this. When I was Protestant, I heard people say he actually was a theophany. Oh, okay. Like he was like an the son of, of the, yeah, the he, angel of the Lord, the son of man. Exactly, yeah. Like he, yeah. Was, he is actually Jesus in a pre-incarnate form. Yeah. Um, I, I think that if you pay attention to this carefully, that can't that doesn't quite work. Right. Um, I, I don't think he... But, but the point that's being made, I think, is... Perhaps Genesis, it's a type of... Well, yeah, and the reason it's typological... So yeah. again, the, to our student, you know, he seems so mysterious. Why wouldn't Genesis say, and Melchizedek, the son of Bob... Who, you know what I mean? Why, you know, and then after, and tell us what he did afterwards. And then he went home and died or something, and his grave can be seen to this day. Why yeah. is he left so cryptic? Well, because 
if all you have is this record about Melchizedek, it seems like he comes from nowhere, so he has no beginning, yeah. and he has no end, but right. you don't have any death. So, yeah. in a, I guess, a literary sense, he's without beginning or end. Right. So, symbolically, he kind of represents the Logos. He, he kind of points represents, towards it. Exactly, yeah, 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 by virtue of being so um, shadowy. Right. Right, yeah. that, that creates the effect of him seeming like he's kind of like God, in a sense. Yeah. Uh, and resembling the Son of God, and therefore his pre, you know, and, and again, there's an intentional thing. He remains a priest forever. Somehow he's a priest, and again, we know that there were, you know, like Moses' father-in-law was also yeah. like a kind of priest yeah, of Jethro, God, right? Yeah. So there's precedent for pre, um, you know, pre-Levitical priests oh, right, sure. of, of yeah. God. So you know, it's not impossible how that could come about. But because he's this priest who never dies, there's this kind of again literary thing of. Well, it's like his priesthood right. still is, exists somehow. Oh, okay, right. right. It's kind of in the ether, I think. It's, yeah, okay. Um, which is supported then by Psalm 110. Someone's going to rise up in that order. Right. So uh, what's the point he's making? Verse 4. See how great he is, how great Melchizedek is. Even Abraham the patriarch gave him a tenth of the spoils. And he goes on and says, yeah, like, uh, the Levites, they collect tithes. Right. right. But verse 6, but this man, who does not belong to their ancestry collected tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had received the promises. Uh, so the Levites, sure, they do, you know, because the, the, the whole idea would be, you can only be a priest if you've descended from Levi. Right. You know, you're related yeah. to Aaron, right? Yeah. Here he's saying, well, Melchizedek wasn't, right? And yet, oh, Abraham right. defers to him and, right, and, and, is, and is blessed by him. And, he, and verse 7, okay. it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Uh, kind of an interesting thing because we have so many blessings in the Catholic Church. I sometimes yeah. think about this verse, you know. But yeah. Uh, yeah. And so in this case, uh, it says verse 9. This is a very interesting argument. You know, this is not the kind of argument that moderns would always find persuasive, right? But he's, the author of Hebrews says, One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So he's, he's yeah. actually making the point that, yeah, like, Melchizedek is superior to Levi. His priesthood is superior to the Levi priesthood right. because Levi was still in Abraham symbolically, right. and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Right. And, and if that sounds peculiar, it's maybe worth thinking about the whole idea of original sin. Okay. Right? That in some sense, you know, we were all in Adam when he sinned, and we all right. kind of fell with him. Uh, you know, maybe that's an analogy we can think of. And the point oh, there, so, so the Levites were in Abraham when he blessed. In a symbolic sense, Levi oh. actually paid tithes to, uh, yeah, to Melchizedek, right. and Melchizedek blessed Levi. Right. So his priesthood okay. is superior yes. to yeah. that of Levi. Okay. Um, and so the whole point is, and uh, verse uh, fifteen, it is more even more obvious that when another priest arises resembling Melchizedek, one who has become a priest not through a legal requirement concerning physical descent but through the power of an indestructible life. Mm -hmm. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he's, and, he, and he goes on in the rest of this chapter, he keeps going through Psalm 110. But the point is, yeah, Jesus, you know, uh, our Lord sprang out of Judah, it says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's true, he was a Judite, he wasn't a Levite. Right. Uh, a Levite. But he belongs to a priesthood that has nothing to do with descent, right? It doesn't say Melchizedek became a priest because he inherited from somebody, right. right? He has some kind of eternal priesthood in some sense. And, you know, what is the authority by which you belong to this priesthood? Well, it's an indestructible life. Again, right. just, we don't know anything about Melchizedek's yeah. death yeah. or anything yes. like or yeah. where he came from. And, of course, that's what Jesus has because he has an indestructible life right. because he's been raised from the dead. 
right? right. His head has been raised up from the brook that he drank from. Like it says yes, that, yes, yeah. um, and that is ultimately what Psalm 110 after is after shattering his enemies. After shattering right. his enemies, yeah. just like Abraham shattered yeah. the uh, captors yeah. of Lot, right? right? Uh, and David shatters his enemies too. Well, Jesus shatters the enemies, especially death. Yeah, and is raised up to sit at the right hand of God. We know that yeah. uh, very well. And his enemies are under his footstool, and now yeah. he has this priestly function, this ruling, uh, ruling function and priestly function, and to show that that's superior to Levi, uh, the author invokes Melchizedek, yeah. and shows that's why it's so important that uh, again I think this is the reason why Genesis keeps all this veil, just so that he can have this yeah. kind of symbolic representation of Jesus, and make this point that it's a it's a priesthood that you don't have to descend from anybody to have, which actually opens it up for us. Right. Because it's kind of like John 1 says, you know, we became sons of God not through physical descent, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. By God's will. Um, right. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and again, he, he, he goes on and makes, like, lots of points. You know, there's lots of priests of Levi. Uh, there's only one priest of Melchizedek. Right. And, you know, and because they keep dying and they have to be replaced. <laughs> kind of yes. thing. And that's why this priesthood is superior. So the, the real point here is to say, yeah, this has all been superseded. It's found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And now that's right. the priesthood we should turn to. Which is why what you mentioned before is so significant, that Eucharistic imagery. Yes. Uh, particularly if you uh, support the theory that Hebrews is actually like a, a homily before a Eucharist. I'm not sure I buy that, but it's an interesting theory that it's a, uh, you know, because it talks about, you know, now we've come to the city, you know, uh, right? Yes. That, that can be touched, you know, yes. I mean, yeah. uh, and offer better sacrifices here. So, uh, so that I think is, I think that's ultimately what Melchizedek's doing in the Bible. And, and again, there's a reason. We're not supposed to know that much about him because he's ultimately supposed to just point us towards Christ, you know. And uh, and in a sense, Philo's right. He does represent the Logos, all right, the eternal Logos, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think he certainly points towards him. I, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily think Philo's no, take that he's like the incarnate no, like, yeah. uh, Logos or something like that would... No, I don't think convincing, that, yeah, but, quite works. But, but yeah, but, no, no, the, the, the way the imagery resonates... Uh, or it was refracted, uh, it all starts to make sense in light of the indestructible life of Jesus, the one who has risen uh, from um, uh, to the right hand of the, or ascended to the right hand of the Father and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, that that, that, um, this kind of um, almost like stained glass, if you like, uh, starts to make sense as this all is refracted through the light the light of Christ Uh, of his resurrection yeah yeah absolutely so I guess going back to you know to conclude with the kind of the threefold sense uh, what was the literal sense in which I suppose he was a local king who God had some relationship with that God had already revealed himself to Um, allegorically he represents Jesus Christ right who uh, conquers the devil and uh, offers us uh, his body and blood right in this Eucharistic sacrifice Uh, I guess morally you could say as well um He's someone to imitate because he comes and refreshes Abraham after the battle, right? Like he yeah. prays for him, he blesses him, uh, blesses him, you know, spiritually, and also, I mean, it was a sacrifice, but you know, presumably also Abraham may have been hungry, right? And the bread yeah. and wine may have been a refreshment to him, right? Yeah, and, and I think um, he's important for rem- uh, reminding Abraham of his vocation, uh, right? So, I mean, because there's a separation. Uh, and unions going back and forth between Abraham and Lot, but it seems like Abraham's call, he kind of almost, you know, forgets about it, forgets to prioritize it when he allows 
this land of the garden and uh, before the Jordan, the plains of the Jordan, yeah. east of the Jordan, to, to be given to Lot. And so Abraham kind of has to be, like, jog, his memory has to be jogged about his that deep down vocation abiding within his heart. And this is where Melchizedek comes in and blesses him uh, by the God who made heaven and earth. Yeah. Uh, right? And, and so, and, and rolling in that sense too, we might think of, is there someone we can bless or, or it, who's going through a very difficult time, but when the when they come uh, are beginning to emerge from that fray, uh, here, this is, let's point our eyes towards the Lord as a representative of peace, right? Uh, this is the one to whom we are directed. Our lives give thanks for, despite the plethora of challenges uh, that we inevitably face in this fallen world, all of this is a gift from God. Our eyes are set, or this is resetting our eyes towards Him. And as a res- then in response, uh, yeah, we give of the good things that we do have uh, back to Him. So it's interesting um, yeah. function that 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 Melchizedek has in that respect as well. And, and in so doing, there's righteousness and there's peace. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And think of it, um, and then from the mis- ministerial priesthood perspective. Uh, in, in offering, uh, mediating in that sense, um, the body and blood of Christ to us, uh, well, they allow us to become righteous, right? Yes. Uh, so yeah. so it's, it's, this is um, the righteousness of the true king that we get to experience, right, through the body and blood that's offered to us. Yeah, and, and it reminds us of what it means to be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, right? right? Yes. That we are, I mean, even those references, right, are maybe invoking Melchizedek, right? Our only yeah. example, other than Jesus, really, of a, of a priest king. Oh, right, <laughs> right. right. Yes. Um, so we should be thinking, well, how do we help people who have just come from the fray, and how do we bless them? How do we remind people that ultimately all of this comes from God and to trust in God, you know? And uh, Which, of course, leads into the anagogical meaning, which is uh, ultimately at the end of time, uh, when all, you know, death will be defeated, yeah. right? It will be yeah. conquered. And uh, we'll all be set free like Lot, despite our stupid mistakes and resting <laughs> yes. after, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, we'll have the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb, right? Yeah. And that will be the ultimate of righteousness and peace, right? Where yeah. we are in the, the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, uh, forever. Right. right? And that's, yes. that's what that's pointing towards, that yeah. eternal peace and eternal righteousness uh, under the reign of God and his priest king. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. So I hope that was helpful. Yeah. I hope now it all makes perfect sense to you, everybody. Uh, well, Casey, um, the mystery is part of the explanation. I right. Think. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, it 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 makes sense when you understand how mysterious he is. You know that he's supposed to be a little bit beyond our uh, comprehension because right. it's uh, something yeah. that God prepared for us. So yes. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, with that being said, uh, Dr. McClarney, would you like to perform a royal priestly function and close us in prayer? Let us pray in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the fullness of time, you sent into this world your Son, your only begotten Son, who came to this world to shed his blood and to give his body on the altar of the cross, that we may in turn be rejuvenated, remade, refreshed by his Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that that same Spirit may guide us amidst the challenges, the struggles, the uncertainty, anxiety of this world. May we offer all that we have and all that we are uh, to you and to your holy name. And in turn, may we help to be a sign of a strength, a sign of your compassion and mercy and love to our neighbors and all those we come across in our lives. 
And we make this prayer with confidence. We pray through the holy name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.